2: And you're definitely building the relationship with the dog. And I sure as heck don't want to spend my money to have somebody else build a relationship with my dog. (laughs) So, by gosh, I'm going to do that.
1: If you're currently in the market for a kennel, then be sure to check out Gunner Kennels. Gunner Kennels is the only kennel that's five-star crash rated from the Center for Pet Safety. The double-wall, rotor-molded construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions. Also, Gunner Kennels has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last a lifetime, and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you could need, from fan kits to keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around so if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend head on over to gundog and click on the gunner link be sure to purchase your kennel accessories and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast
0: all right welcome back to another week of GDIY everybody me and Adam have a fun episode for you guys this week we are actually joined with Adam's dog's breeder, Ken McAdale.
1: Yeah, he's my uh, NAVDA dad. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm pretty excited about this episode because uh, Ken's a good friend. And it, I've had a really good experience with a, a breeder that's become a friend and a mentor to me. So I'm overly excited about this episode. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know you've been looking forward to it for a while. And it was a fun conversation. We kind of touch on a lot of ground. Nothing, not one specific topic but but uh, a lot of good information he's experienced he's run a bunch of dogs in the invitational trained a bunch of dogs and uh doing a lot of work with getting youth involved in his chapter and uh bred obviously bred your dog he's bred a few litters and stuff so we just kind of this conversation spans a lot of ground on this and and it was a it was a fun one to do and listen to so i hope you guys enjoy that but uh yeah, a little bit of housekeeping real quick. We are actually, Patreon is killing it, and we're halfway to the mark. If you guys missed out on the giveaway, by the time you're listening to this, the uh, Instagram, Facebook giveaway should be wrapping up. And uh, so if you miss that and you want to get in on a chance to win a Gunner Kennel, join the Patreon. We're about halfway to the mark to where we give away another Gunner Kennel.
1: Yeah, the instructions uh, for the first giveaway are online, pretty easy, uh, they're on oh, Facebook it's, and it's Instagram. It's over by now. Oh, yeah, it is over by now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the time this one comes out, we'll already know. The day this goes for, out is yeah. the day that it's winning. So, I mean,
0: it, hey, look at it. If it's still going, you may have like an hour or two, but. Uh, yeah, there's, but, a yeah. yeah there's, there's a chance. Yeah, there's a chance. They could sque- still do it. Squeak in at the last <laughs> second. But, yeah, appreciate for everybody that participated in that. It, it was. It was a pretty big giveaway, but like I said, we have another kennel up for grabs once we hit a certain number of Patreon users. Yeah, for that
1: one, we're halfway there, and yeah. so those Patreon folks that that put in to get an extra name in the hat on the first drawing, your name's in the hat on the second drawing already, too.
0: Absolutely, and you're also in the name in the hat for all our spotlight giveaways at the end of each month with, with a little bit of swag in it for you, so we'll be announcing that as well for, the, for last month's... Uh, Spotlight with Houndsmen of America, and then we have a fun new spotlight coming at you this upcoming Thursday, and so be on the lookout for that. It's that was a really neat conversation. I'm not going to spoil who it was, but you guys need to check it out because what they do with dogs it's uh, it's pretty impressive. You guys are really going to enjoy that. But uh, yeah, unless you have something else to touch on, I think we can stop boring everybody and you know typical stuff. Just remember, rate, review, share. Uh, let us know what you think hit us up on uh facebook instagram gmail gundog at yourself at gmail.com if nothing else let's get to ken and what everybody came here for that's it here's ken enjoy do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up train your dog but now it's time to train yourself Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger,
1: and recover faster. All right, everybody. We're back with Ken McAdow this week. I've got a big, long introduction for Ken uh, because I'm one of his biggest fans. But first, Ken, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: We're great. Thanks for coming on tonight. Uh, Ken is the gentleman that I got my puppy from, so I've been... Telling Nick and Ken, I've been bu- bugging both these guys for a while to have him on as a guest, so <laughs> we're excited to pick your brain tonight, Ken.
2: <laughs> pick the, away. The, the infamous, pickings are slim, though.
1: The infamous Ken McAdow. That's right. He's famous to me, but we're definitely going to try to make him famous now. <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: because <laughs> <laughs> we're good for that. So I'm excited to hear uh, a lot. I, I know quite a bit about about you and your dogs. I obviously, have a dog from you, but I'm excited to to ask a few questions I don't know the answer to and get to know you better and, uh, sure. And go down that, go down a few rabbit holes, maybe.
2: All right. I'm, I'm good for rabbit holes. So you'll probably have to pull me back every once in a while.
1: That sounds good. So how'd you get started? This is one that I don't know the answer to. How'd you get started with
2: bird dogs? With bird dogs? Yes, sir. I knew, from when I was a little kid that I loved dogs and seemed to have some sort of a special relationship, but I my, I come from a family that doesn't do any hunting at all, and uh, I my dad told stories about how his granddad used to rent a bird dog in the backwoods in uh, Missouri, and they'd go hunting for the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon, but my dad didn't like it, so he didn't continue that. So it was up to me to figure out how to do this on my own. So I guess um it's a winding story, but so I, I really I knew I really liked dogs. And I got into the navy. I became a submarine training and training guy, nuclear power guy. And that took me out to Idaho Falls, Idaho, because one of my buddies talked me into going out there. He didn't tell me it was a two-hour bus ride each way to get to the place where we worked for 12 hours <laughs> a day. But, but in the time off, he introduced me to hunting, and I did my first duck hunt with him. I killed my first hunt with him, and uh, um, I knew that that's kind of where I wanted to go. I knew that I loved dogs. I knew upland hunting and retreat and waterfowling both involved dogs. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do yet. I was married, and I knew I'd be spending a lot of time at sea, so it wasn't time for a dog yet. But when I went to my first duty station, some of the guys in my division wanted to go to a hunting preserve, and they dragged me with them. <laughs> so I went out there and saw an upland dog in action, and then I was hooked. Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do and probably within a couple of months I said to my wife well actually we worked on the breed uh we were, we decided we were going to get an English setter okay and and then I told my wife one Friday night I said I found a breeding let's go up to Cleveland and buy it from South Carolina oh my god <laughs> and goodness. we drove we drove up to Cleveland from South Carolina now at the time I knew Jack Squat about dogs and breedings and all that stuff. And I said to myself, All I want is a dog I can go out and hunt with. I don't need a champion breeding or anything like that. This is my first stupid decision for dog buying, which I know you guys are big into figuring out. And so I got a bench type English setter. We drove up there and we got it. He was a fantastic family dog. We just we loved him to death. But between he and I Neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing, so it was kind of a, <laughs> yeah. the blind leading the blind trying to figure out how to how to do this stuff, yeah I was somewhere kinda, in all that
1: I was kind of waiting for the butt. you said he was a fantastic family dog, but <laughs> he looked good while doing it, yeah uh
2: yeah we neither one of us knew what to do as far as the uh hunting went. We tried, we went out and ran around, walked around the woods. I actually even bumped into a covey of quail once in Florida after I got out of the Navy, but we weren't successful in really learning how to become a bird dog and a and a handler and hunter. So um, at some point in there, I moved up to Maryland, and that that dog was about ten years old. Um, my mentor, my my work mentor at the time, turned out to become my hunting mentor also. And he had German short hairs. He convinced me that was the way to go. So I started looking for one. Let me back up just a little bit. Back when I was in still active duty in the Navy, I remember reading my first article in Gun Dog about NAVDA. Yeah. I, I remember because the name sounded so funny. I had no clue. There was no chapter anywhere near me. So that kind of went into the back of my mind somewhere, and I didn't remember anything about it. But... After I was out of the Navy, decided a short hair was the way to go. I was living up in Maryland at the time. And I actually called around and talked to a bunch of AKC people. I bothered the AKC secretary for our local chapter so bad, she finally, out of frustration, (laughs) she invited me out to all these places. But she she finally said, you need to talk to NAVDA. And she... (laughs) She pointed me to the Potomac chapter. She gave me a point of contact, who at that time was inactive. His name is Dan Carter. Um, he was inactive, but uh, he now founded the Chesapeake chapter. He's back active again. At the time, he was inactive, and he pointed me to Chip Bondi. Um And Chip has told me a million times since that Dan Carter was his training mentor. Well, Chip Bondi became my training mentor, Okay, And from there, that's how I got started with NAVDA and really understanding what it means to train a bird dog and to hunt with a trained bird, bird dog.
3: Sure. So
1: at this point, were you going out to NAVDA with the setter or did you, did you have a short hair at this point?
2: Well, that poor setter. <laughs> <laughs> Here he is 10 years old, and I was going to learn how to force fetch with that dog. Oh, no. Um, he ended up passing away on me just to avoid it. I'm sure that was out of spite. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's unfortunately we lost him at 10 years old and, but right around then I got the puppy and I'm sure the puppy would have bothered him to death anyway. So I'm sure things worked out for the better. Um, we bought our first short hair from, um, horse and hunt club kennel in Minnesota, just South of Minneapolis. And, uh, I just got so lucky with that dog. She was fantastic. And she taught me so much about training, and I just love her to death. We hunted a bunch together, and just like everybody's dream of a first dog, I, I couldn't have gotten any better.
1: So this is uh, – h- how long ago was this? I'm trying to figure out how long you've been doing NAVDA at this point. <laughs> Date yourself.
0: <laughs>
2: I, I started in, uh, NAVDA in 93. Okay. I joined during their winter meeting. I went and sat there during a the winter meeting and the training didn't start for a couple of months. I started going out to training before I had the puppy. I was driving there in my ensign mobile, which was a Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving to training in my Camaro and getting out, but you know, you gotta start somewhere. So I got a truck after that, but uh
0: You didn't fit the kennel or the Camaro?
2: Yeah. I, luckily, I never had to try and figure out how to put the kennel in the Camaro. <laughs> that wouldn't have worked.
0: So you finally got to training before you got your dog. What yeah. did you? What were you able to learn before getting your dog that uh, helped you out? Because I know a lot of people can benefit going to the training day even before they get the dog. Adam did that. You did that but some people are hesitant to do that. it's kind of like if they don't have their dog, they don't want to go.
2: Well, even when people have a puppy and they come out there, I, I would, um, posit that they learn more by watching other people handle their dogs and listening to the feedback. Because when you get your dog out there, many first time handlers go brain dead because they want their dog to perform. And they just kind of forget, um, the big picture of what's happening. Exactly. Uh, I've seen it over and over again. It's much easier to learn if you go plant the birds for somebody and then you go out in the field because everybody wants to know where the birds are planted. When they, I don't know why they have a bird dog if they want to know where the birds are planted, <laughs> but anyway, they want to know where the birds are planted. So the bird planter goes out and is available. Yeah. Um, and I learned so much by just helping.
0: Absolutely. And we, we say that all the time. I'm sure everybody's sick of it us saying it, but it's, you're going to get more out of it by by you being in the field, helping everybody, as opposed to you just going out with your dog
1: only and then leaving.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, (laughs) I've heard you say that a million times and I'll add my two cents. I mean, you just learn more when you're not worried about your performance and your dog's performance and you're just observing and listening to what people say. Plus you broaden your experience. If it's just your dog, you're only seeing what your dog does wrong exactly if it's all these other dogs you're seeing what a bunch of dogs and handlers do wrong
1: yep and it's interesting to see the different breeds of dogs and what works for one breed and what doesn't work for another and even within german short hairs or any breed there's different lines and the the lines can be a lot different too so uh you have sharpshooter dogs now How'd you go from, uh, the kennel, the short hair kennel that you mentioned, the sharpshooter dogs and, and what was in between?
2: Well, it took me three dogs to get to a sharpshooter dog. And, um, and so I experienced a little bit of a lot of different short hairs. That first kennel was horse and hunt club and they were a very small kennel. I think the gentleman that owned it was rather wealthy and he imported a a German sire and uh, the dog that I got out of that breeding was fantastic. I have absolutely no complaints. I don't know what happened with the rest of it. And I haven't heard of horse and hunt club since I hope they're still doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, the second dog I got from a relatively local breeder, um, it came recommended by some of my friends and, uh, when I went to pick, it was actually an outcross breeding instead of a line breeding, as the first one was. And when I went to choose the puppy, I ran the puppy test, and I picked one puppy out of the breeding, and I got talked out of that puppy by somebody else and talked into another one. <laughs> and the one I got talked into was the alpha of the litter, and I learned real well what a mistake that was. <laughs> um never, ever pick an alpha for a gun dog. I mean, they're great in the show ring, but, um, but I wasn't interested in the showing at that point.
0: Is so, that because they tend to have more, more drive instead of cooperation? What, why, why do you less say that?
2: cooperation, more dominant? Um, right. this particular dog did not like the end of the retrieve sequence where she had to give the bird up. <laughs> she was, she was a fantastic hunter. I have no complaints at all about the way she covered ground and her staunchness on point and you know everything I could ask her to do, except get giving the bird up when she got back to me. And um, shes I guess you'll probably get to a question, but she's the only dog that I didn't take to the uh, Invitational, and the only reason I didn't, I, I knew it would be a, a massive undertaking to beat that force-fetch issue. <laughs> but um, she qualified for it, even with that. But I knew what it would take, and I had three three kids in high school all playing sports, and I knew I didn't have the time to do it. So we just passed on that invitational.
3: Well, I,
0: I like that frame of mind because a, a lot of people don't take the take the time or really just honest with themselves. And it's you know you knew that you could probably. Turn that dog into the invitational level dog that you wanted, but the time and dedication, and just the banging your head against the wall to get her to that point may have not been worth it. And so you kind of you weighed your dog's strengths and weaknesses and decided, hey, she's a great hunter. I'm still going to hunt her, and I like her, but she's just it's just maybe not worth moving to the invitational level with.
2: Right. And you didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you anyway what my motivations were and when I first started with NAVDA. Like I said, when I first chose a breeding, I really wasn't focused on developing a champion dog. I wanted a hunting companion. And that dog was a great hunting companion. So why why go through the stress and cause my family so much pain uh, to try and get her through the invitational? We just passed on that one.
0: Yeah, I, I like that because a lot of people would go the opposite way, and just because they can do it, they would just just beat a dead horse and just force the training into <laughs> it, and it's, you know, at, at what cost is that?
2: Yeah, yeah, and it would have taken away from her enjoyment of hunting in the long run, too. She did love to hunt. There's no doubt about it. i break out my shotgun for either training or hunting, and she would sit on the bag, the shotgun bag, until it was time to load up. you're not getting out of here with this gun without taking me
1: (laughs) oh that's great i could see myself falling into the category of my dog's qualified for the invitational i'm going no matter what so i think it takes a lot of maturity to to make that decision um so you've qualified every short hair you've had for the invitational then is that right
2: yes except the one i'm The young one now. Except the young one you have now, yeah. yeah.
0: So how many dogs is that?
2: Um, Five. Okay. I've had six short hairs, qualified five for the Invitational, and um, took four of them and passed all four. Wow.
1: (laughs) All right, so listen up, folks. Ken knows what he's talking about.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of luck involved in that. So, I mean, there's a lot of hard work, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of luck involved in passing the invitational too. So we can talk about that when we get to where whenever you want to talk about the invitational.
1: Well, go for it. I mean, I I want to hear what luck's involved.
2: Um the weather. Weather is a big one. So the better preparations you do, the better you're prepared, but still weird things can happen. Like you know, we all know that it can be hot. So you have to prepare to run in the heat. But the guys that are up in Alaska and Maine, they have a hard time finding the kind of heat that they're going to run in at the Invitational. So they have to try extra hard to prepare for that. And if you get unlucky and are drawn on the hottest day of the week, running the hottest part of the day, you, the judges understand and allow you lots of water breaks, but it's tough on a dog. It's tough on a handler. Yeah. Um, you may get into a day where the wind is blowing 50 miles an hour and the rain is horizontal. I saw that happen in the, the day before I ran my, let's see, second dog. And it was just the double mark retrieve. <laughs> the duck had blown so far off of where it was thrown for the second uh, bird. It was, you know, very difficult. Turned into and a duck search I saw, maybe. I saw well, I would say even worse than that, but it, it, it turned into uh, a situation where it was extremely difficult. There were still dogs that passed, and people prepared and could get by, but luck plays a lot in in um, helping you get there. I've seen other dogs that have other problems with other things, like at the honor, uh, the uh, honor dog can screw up and do something silly. Shoot, I was the honor dog at the last... Re- uh, invitational. And luckily it didn't cause a problem, but my dog was, her feet were getting stuck in the mud coming out of the mud with the duck. And so she would go close to the, the honor dog and she got within like two feet of the honor dog. And that's not, that's not good. Quickly,
0: quickly explain the honor dog to, to the people that may not know what that is. Oh, sure.
2: I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking about that. After the blind retrieve event, there's an honor event. Well, it's all part of the same event, but after the blind retrieve, you heal your dog to the honor location. The dog under test gets uh, put on a a painted mark and told to stay there, and the handler has to move about four or five yards behind it into his painted mark, and then they launch a duck that lands pretty much five yards in front of the the dog that's honoring the retrieve, and... Uh, another dog who's off to the side is sent to retrieve the duck from right in front of the other dog. So it, you know, you train for it and you can get ready for it. But when my dog happens to go too close to the other dog, it puts a lot of stress on that other dog. <laughs> yeah.
0: Kind of a little unnecessary pressure almost just like, Hey, thanks for being a good teammate
1: there honor dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. already a, a difficult, extremely difficult test. So then there's the additional, uh, additional layer there that that's something you know it can be added in so right
2: and i've heard i've heard stories of people dogs going across on the blind retrieve and having a flight of ducks come in and fly right over the the dog on its oh, retrieve. retrieve. that would suck <laughs> yeah yeah there's a million things that can happen so i always cross my fingers and Hope my luck holds on my test day.
0: Well, and honestly, you know, me and you have never met in person, but every time we go out training, there's at least one point to where Adam will say, Ken says do this, Ken says do that. and well, I'm
2: I, sorry about that. <laughs> I have to apologize.
0: Well, from, from just hearing it, i i know that you are a, a proponent of training for what could possibly happen what what those that examples that you were just talking about what could go wrong and trying sure. to cover all your bases and we've kind of implemented a lot more of that into our training sessions just because it's one thing to go out in a field and do three birds and then go back to the truck but it's okay, what could go wrong in an actual testing environment? And let's try and mimic that as much as possible.
2: Yeah.
1: One of the things, uh, the, when I, I think it was the first time I came out to Navda, Ken, I, I said, do I need (laughs) to leave some of my family here at the truck? And only I go. And you said, no, the more people, the better. (laughs) Because, uh, in, in the field, because there's a judging team, there's gunners, there's other people spectating. So, bring as many people as you want, uh, as long as they're safe. So a lot of those distractions, if you're at that phase in training, I guess, if you're at that level, it actually right. helps. And I, I did that the other day because I went at the end of the training day, close to the end, and it was only going to be like two gunners. So I grabbed some people and said, can you go with me? <laughs> Just cause yeah. I wanted, I wanted a bigger crowd. What are some of the other things you do to prepare for, things that could go wrong.
2: Well, again, some of the things that they do to prepare for some of the things that can go wrong are sometimes lucky. Like when we were getting my dog that just passed this fall um, ready for the invitational, we found a a pond where there was a farm duck that somebody had turned loose, probably some Easter pet or something like that. (laughs) And we did blind retrieves across of that with that farm duck tooling around on the far side, And the first time she saw it, she went for it and I, you know, called, called her off and sent her for the blind when she was halfway across. And it took me two tries, but she listened. And then that gave me confidence that if that situation would ever pop up, that I'd be able to do it. It gave me confidence in handling her, that she knew, she understood all the yard work that we'd done that led up to that. And, uh... And then every time we went back that darn farm duck was still there. <laughs> and and she just started ignoring the other thing other than the command that I gave her. So luckily we didn't run into that situation at the invitational, but you know, I felt very comfortable that she was ready. Part of that is luck. Another thing that happened is we were, that particular pond was right under the flight line for Dulles International. And one day we were doing blind retrieves. The planes were going right over our heads within a couple of hundred feet up, a few hundred feet up. And, you know, those jets are big and loud and she's halfway across the pond when one of them comes in on its landing and she looks up and she's looking up at it while she's swimming and starting to veer (laughs) off in the direction the plane is going. And, uh, uh, after the engine noise went by, I just got her attention and got her back online. And so, any, you know, luck plays a lot even in getting her ready. But the, the things that I do on a daily basis, I start from when they're puppies. And, you know, I start anytime you teach a command, you start out at the very easy with no distractions in the basement or in the backyard um, get the dog to comply so it understands the command, and then I slowly introduce the distractions. Um, uh, I guess I, it was, I think it was Tia when I was getting her ready for her utility test. The dogs had caught a squirrel in the backyard and killed it. So, what did I do? I took that squirrel and laid it beside my healing stakes, and we healed right past that squirrel <laughs> <Nice. I like laughs> for a that few one. days. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just take advantage of whatever is provided.
0: Yeah, I'm but, a I'm a big component of that, just making it more difficult and adding in different layers and distractions. Yeah, and I know I know Adam was talking about one that that he I believe that you're saying that uh, Ken plans around is the runners when you're working steadiness with dogs and stuff like that. Like Mitch is having. Having the kind of hang up right now to where he's steady on a, do- a bird that will flush, but if a bird runs, then he's all over it. <laughs>
2: yeah, he's done. <laughs>
0: and so I, know- I
2: heard him say that in one of the previous things, and I meant to talk to him about that uh, <laughs> a couple of a couple uh, of days ago.
1: Well, Ken, you are like uh, my NAVDA mentor, so go ahead and go ahead and give me <laughs> my about? lesson.
2: Well, what I would do in that situation is set it up. Um, and you can do that by pulling flight feathers out of a bird and um, putting it on, a say, a 10-foot cord and putting a, an anchor in the ground and letting it run around in a 10-foot circle with hopefully no cover. So your dog comes up and sees him, and then that bird's going to take off running and trying to fly and flap, and it gives you the opportunity to do what you have to do to... Make the dog steady. Keep him
1: steady. So do I hide the bird where the dog will point it based on scent or just bring him in and let him sight point it?
2: What I do when I'm getting ready for the invitational is I put it out in a, a barren area where the, the bird, she's going to see, my dog's going to see the bird before she smells it. She's going to see it and have to stop on a sight point. And then I go in there and make that bird run if it doesn't run on its own, which they usually run on their own anyway. So I I just set it up.
0: Now, eventually do you have to transition to where it's, it's a site or a sent point also. So they, they kind of associate, okay, I didn't see it, but now it's running out of the cover. Do you try and incorporate that somewhat before the invitational?
2: Um, I haven't run into that one that where that was an issue. Um, you know, when I'm hunting bird, birds move all the time and wow. I can usually tell on with my dog when the birds have moved, I can tell by their body language and I come up and I tap them on the head to relocate them. Is that when you're saying Mitchell is having an issue?
1: No, it's, it's when, if I go in to flush it and the bird starts running, uh, yeah. if it's running away from him, he's okay. But if it runs kind of towards him, it's game over. He's
3: going for (laughs) it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's tough. Running toward him is harder than running away. But running away cost me the only point I've lost in the Invitational. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) With my first dog. Yeah. Uh, We were, she went on point. The other dog backed her. We're walking in. The bird started running. And I, and the gunners started hustling to try and get the bird in the air. We finally got in the air shot and I went back to the dog and let it retrieve. The other handler told me later that my dog had moved about five feet or something oh, while wow. we were chasing it up. So that was the only point I lost it in an invitational.
1: So is that what got you started with the, uh, Heather like anchoring birds to the ground and, and working on yes.
2: that? Okay. Yes. I didn't do that with that dog.
1: So every, every lesson you learn, I guess, makes you start doing something new and, yeah, and hopefully
2: forward. I don't forget too many of those old lessons and have to relearn them again. <laughs> I'm sure I am sure I forget some of those and I'll, we'll have to relearn them the hard way.
1: So what are some of the things you do? I mean, I, I know the answer to some of these, but tell us what you do with puppies um, with the end goal. Well, I guess first of all, is, is getting a dog to the invitational your end goal? I know that you want a good hunting dog, but when you start a dog out, are you thinking about, the Invitational. When you're first starting with that
3: dog,
2: the first time I picked up a Navda Ames book and read it, I read it cover to cover. I read the Invitational portion, and I go, "Gosh, I hope I can get that far." <laughs> and um, you know, so I would say, every puppy I get, I say to myself, "Gosh, I hope I can get that far <laughs> with the dog." Yep. And you know, why do anything less? But on the other hand, like like we've already said. Don't let it kill you. If you don't get that far, enjoy what you got.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because you're going to have them for 10 or 15 years, so you better enjoy it. Yeah. So tell us some of the things you do with puppies to, to start getting them ready to be good hunting dogs and with the end goal of the invitational in mind.
2: I guess what I'd say is I, when I start puppies off, I try and take advantage of what fantastic sponges young brains are and try and expose them to things at the earliest age that, that I think they can do it at. And for me, that means I usually have a puppy swimming by between six and seven weeks old before it goes home uh, with its new owner. And I think the only, dog that, the only puppy that I've bred that hasn't done that is the one that I kept this time. <laughs> oh, really? And she was swimming within a week. Yeah, she was swimming within a week, so no big deal. Um, let's see, as far as pointing goes, about seven or eight weeks, I start taking a quail. I've already exposed them to quail where they can dominate the quail, so they know that they're the boss. They know that they can take that quail down if if it comes to it. So what I start doing is taking a fully flighted quail, and I put it in low grass, um, with the, as big an area as I can find, and I bring the dog in, let it cross downwind, and if a point doesn't happen, that's okay. We'll do it again next weekend until it does happen. Yeah. If the point does happen, then the fun starts, and the, the puppy will hold it for a few seconds or whatever, and then it'll bounce in and try and catch the quail, and it doesn't have enough experience to know where that quail is, so the quail gets up and flies. The puppy watches it. <laughs> And the puppy will make a beeline, but they just don't have the attention span to get all the way there, usually. <laughs> so then you go up there, and you encourage the dog in the right direction, and maybe you get another point out of it. Or in a couple of cases with puppies, I've gotten uh, the the quail has actually hit the ground and run for 10, 15 yards, left a nice little trail for me. <laughs> yeah. So I bring the puppy across that trail, and I've had nice trails from puppies that were eight weeks old just following that scent trail of the quail until they get in close enough and then get another point out of it. Um, So exposure, as young as they can possibly take it, is what I've found uh, leads to a lot of success. And the reason I do it is because I just love to watch puppies do what they're bred to do. And I've seen so much success, I just keep doing it.
1: Yeah, it it is awesome to watch a, a puppy go on point. I always say that they don't, it's like they don't know why they're pointing. They just freeze because yeah. their instincts make them <laughs> freeze.
2: <laughs> right. And and it's it's okay if it doesn't happen then. I, I don't sweat it if it takes 10 weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it takes. You know, the puppy's going to come to the point at some point. I just put another quail out the next week and it, it'll get there.
0: Yeah, you'll the dogs will eventually come around and uh, that's what I try and try and promote to everybody is just, just slow down. It'll get there. If it's not pointing, don't freak out. Don't think you have to go, you know, change out the dog or something. It'll get there. Uh, besides, besides pointing, is there something else that when they're really young, you're, you're trying to plant the seeds for something bigger and, and maybe down the road at like utility level or something.
2: Well, as I mentioned, it's exposure, so uh, what I like to do with a young dog is you probably shouldn't take them for hour-long runs, but exposing them to 15, 20-minute walks in the field, that's not bad. Um, they they start to learn to cover the ground better, and uh, it, that's very helpful. Um, definitely swimming. Uh it just comes naturally (laughs) for the puppies. It comes naturally for me. It comes naturally. And it's, it's a, it's a fun time. It's my favorite time of a dog's life is to watch the little switches flip in the dog's brain when it says, Oh, this is what I was bred for. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's fun to watch. Uh, you told me when you were helping me get Mitchell ready for natural ability and you were getting Linda ready. Um, I think it was maybe a week before the test. You said, now you haven't trained your dog to do anything yet. You've just exposed it. And I was, it was kind of like a a punch to the gut for a minute. I'm like, well, I feel like I've been <laughs> training this dog, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, you brought me back down to earth. Like you haven't done anything with this dog yeah. yet. It's all genetic and it's all natural. Hence the name of the test, natural ability. Um, <laughs> right. Basically, just don't screw this up. Here's here's the, the things way. you expose your dog to, and then you take them to the test. Yeah.
2: And and if you try and train for a lot of that stuff, then you just introduce heartache and and pain. Uh, you know, for you, not the dog. Um, there's there's no reason to go overboard about training for a natural ability test. Just expose them, expose them early, and then expose them often. Some people like to shoot a lot of birds for young dogs, but I only do that if I feel the dog doesn't have enough drive. I shoot a few birds for all all those dogs that are getting ready for the natural ability test, but not that many. Um, there's no sense taking away from the point before the natural ability test by shooting a bunch of birds when it doesn't know how to retrieve them anyway. It gives them a little reward, and it'll really build up a dog that doesn't have a a lot of drive, but once the once I know the dog has a lot of drive, I don't shoot very many after that.
1: Now, how do you think that messes up their pointing? And I think this is a a great point to talk about because we see a lot of times where people go, I have a bird dog. I must need to put birds out for my dog. And sometimes we just don't know what to do next with our dog. So that's what we do. How, how does it mess the dog up when we do that?
2: Well, I understand the desire to watch the dog do what it's bred to do. I I love it, too. But every time you put a bird out for a dog, um, you run the risk of the dog actually catching it. And the rule of thumb that the Potomac chapter bantied around when I was a newbie was that for every 10 good points you have, if you have one caught bird, you just wipe them all out. Mm -hmm. So it's not really quite that bad. but. Um, at least yeah, in but my if opinion, if we,
1: if people follow that rule, then it'll really be more like six, they'll go, oh, well, he had six good points that will discount that, uh, that one caught bird. So 10 to one sounds good. Yeah,
2: right? <laughs> You know, dog training is a bunch of two steps forward, one steps back. I try and minimize the amount of times I take that one step back um, and that's just adding more opportunity to take one step back, uh, by putting more birds out. But I, you know, I do it fairly regularly. Like I may do one or two bird When I get one good point, I'm out of there or on a weekend. Or uh, I may skip a couple of weeks and then put another bird out, something like that. Does that make sense?
0: It does. And and so kind of the same sentiment as as what you're applying to the pointing. What, what's your outlook on tracking? Because I've seen a lot of people to where sometimes the first dog's first opportunity at a track is the day of the test. But then I've seen some guys that just wear it out and they're just there. It's kind of like I've seen dogs regress on the track with the more that they do. And it kind of turns it into more of a search than an actual track. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, in, in a natural ability test, I believe tracking is the most difficult thing to decide when you're ready for it and when to quit and all that. And I would say our conventional wisdom is right now that after you have a couple of good tracks, you're ready. And the more you do, the more you chance something going wrong and the dog taking the wrong message away. Um, And we're asking the dog actually with each track to go find that bird. And depending on how strong their pointing instinct is, some catch it. Some don't catch it. And sometimes you're able to get to your dog and restrain it so they don't catch it. Uh, If they catch it, that's fine. Let them dominate the bird, uh, assuming it's not a rooster that's scratching the heck out of them. (laughs) But but, uh, uh, with that one dog that I was telling you about that was very, she was the boss. That was from a young age. Dominant, yeah. She was the boss from a young age. I did tracking training differently then, and I did too much of it. And what I did is I put a pheasant harness on the bird and it took a surf rod and I would let it run into the cover for a hundred yards. I let it run for a hundred yards. And then my son would go all the way, way around and come into the wood line, grab that pheasant, take it off the line, put a dead one there. And then he'd bring that live one back and I'd start the dog on the track. And she was a great tracker. <laughs> 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 she'd, she'd get to that dead bird and oh my gosh. She would bring that back with her tail just so high and so proud of herself and her head. And that was neat. I thought that was neat. But I was feeding into a negative with just feeding her dominance and letting her dominate everything. Um, and, yeah, she did a great track. But uh, there were so many other things that went wrong that I wasn't recognizing at the time.
1: Huh. And then you stop doing that when you're son moved away and you didn't have someone to take that long trip around to swap (laughs) exactly
2: (laughs) when he got into high school football his, his training days were over at that point.
1: Yep. So really exposure to prep for the natural ability test. Don't overdo it. And then with training explain to us the really the first type of training that you start doing with the dog and how you start preparing for utility.
2: Well, as soon as I get through the natural ability test, first of all, I like to run the dogs when they're very young in the natural ability test, six to nine months. I think they're much more biddable and before they hit their teenage years. And uh, they're easier to control. They are, um, I shouldn't say control. They want to work with you more than when they become a teenager and go half brain dead when they become a teenager and go half brain dead, they really want to fire up the jets and get out there and uh, find birds and find more birds. Right. And I find that at least with the sharpshooter dogs that I've worked with, that from six to nine months is ideal uh, for getting them out and doing the natural ability stuff. Um, And then as soon as that natural ability test is over that night or the next day, I start force fetch because mentally they're, uh, they're very stable dogs and they're ready to handle it. And usually, you know, force fetch has a negative connotation because of the name maybe, so trained retrieve is sometimes a better work, work, uh, way to co- uh, talk about it, but sure. it's a force of will is what it gets down to. And so I start the will battle. And what I do there is uh, start with hold and carry, um, you know, a lot of people do this. This is not rocket science or whatever. And the more time you put into hold and carry with more different objects and, you know, dead frozen birds, warm birds when you get to it, you know, all that stuff, the more time you put into that, the easier the fetch training is. And usually by the time I get to um, doing the ear pinch, It takes me about a day and a half of ear pinch and the dog understands exactly what's desired. Now I'm not saying I don't pull that ear pinch out once in a while to make a point after that, but, um, it makes the uh, force fetch so much easier to get along with. And, um, uh, I've learned this over time too. First couple of dogs force fetch was kind of a battle and, and then, once I realized what really needed to happen there is I really needed to build my relationship with my dog through that training effort. Cause you'll learn more about yourself as a trainer and your dog and the dog's personality. When you go through force fetch and you actually apply pressure to the dog, some people don't like to apply pressure to the dog and they would rather not do it. But I, I, I think that you learn more about yourself by doing that. Um, and you're definitely building the relationship with the dog. And I sure as heck don't want to spend my money to have somebody else build a relationship with my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, by gosh, I'm going to do that. Um, so that's the first step of getting ready uh, for a utility-type test or UPT. I don't do UPT. I go straight to utility. But, I, uh, you know, everybody has their own way of doing stuff. Sure. I didn't say this in the beginning, but there's a million ways to skin a cat and most of them actually work and training a bird dog, you know, people have their own ways of doing stuff and you got to respect that. Um, I just have what works for me and that's what I'm telling you about today.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I think it is, uh, it does build a big bond going through the trained retrieve Process. Yeah, I use the politically correct term there. <laughs> <Uh-oh>.
3: <laughs> the
0: finished retrieve.
1: Yeah.
2: But well I talk at work I talk to so many people that have never even considered doing this that I've put that more in my language because when you say force fetch to them and they get turned off. It's an
1: immediate turnoff. Yeah. You
2: know? Yeah. So I don't do it for you and me. I I tend to do it around other people who have no idea what I'm really talking about. And they think all sorts of mean and black and ugly thoughts when I say force fetch. Right.
1: And I've, I've met people that are, they say, I'm not going to take my dog through force fetch, but I am going to make my, I am going to prepare my dog for the utility test and teach them steadiness. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, well, you're going to have to put as much or maybe even more pressure on your dog for steadiness than what you do during force fetch. Would yeah. you agree with that?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, and the reason, well, the fetch training actually almost comes naturally to at least most of the dogs that I've worked with. Um, right. It's something that they end up wanting to do. So at first you're just convincing them that they want to do it, but once they start doing it, it's like, oh, this is a game. I get to play fetch training again.
1: <laughs> right. There's and, some rules to the game.
2: Yeah, and as long as i play by the rules this is a lot of fun and um and they love it and shoot we use the fetch as the reward once we get into the <laughs> steadiness training so yeah you end up i think putting more stress on the dog sometimes sometimes steadiness training goes really well
3: yeah so we're sometimes,
2: uh... like with my old dog now elki I think I've only had to correct her like two or three times in the field and most of them were after she was a VC. <laughs> after she takes the winter off and forgets right. about uh what she's supposed to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, so so she's after, reminded real quick. So after Force Fetch, I'm assuming with the, you coming from a Potomac chapter and you mentoring Adam, you're a big uh proponent of the go before. woe When it comes to duck search and working on the duck search before you start working on steadiness, is that correct?
2: Absolutely. And I, I didn't start out that way. Um, I kind of came about that the hard way. Uh, actually my chapter started doing it. Some of my chapter started doing it when I was in my hiatus with the kids in high school and all the sports and stuff. So I had to learn it after most everybody else did. And uh and it it took me a double pump and then i realized what people were doing and i said oh i got ya and the, and and once i started doing it it made so much sense so i am a strong proponent of establishing that duck search really well before you you move on it just helps if you're going to play the knob the game and you want to get a prize one in a utility dog it it helps what can I say? So, I've seen it go the other way <laughs> and right. what you have to do to overcome it. And it's a lot of time in our pond water where we do duck search training.
0: Yeah. And so I got a question on that because I was actually asked this at training day the other day by somebody I was, I was talking about the go before well, because like you, I was doing it the other way around on on my uh, first two dogs. And in the future I've seen it work so well for other people that it just makes too much sense not to, kind of go that way but i had somebody ask he he kind of had a a low dri- lower drive dog and so he was asking for the for the lower drive breeds or dogs do we kind of see the same outcome from that mentality because he was worried about if he's not in the field and doesn't build up that bird drive from the dog that going to the water and doing a duck search with it isn't necessarily going to work out the same way as, say, a high drive short hair or something like that.
2: Well, I would say that you, um, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what, what your situation is, but my first instinct is to say set it up so he has the drive, the, 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 the bird in the water at your training water to build that drive in the water. So I, maybe I didn't make myself clear, but what I do when I transition a dog from force fetch into a duck search is I tape the duck's wings so it can't get away, and I start off taping their feet, too, and I tape the bill because we've had a batch of ducks that likes to bite the heck out of the puppies. Isn't that right, Mitchell? <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I put it out there about 20 yards, and I'm uh, in pretty much open water, which I understand you guys have access to pretty good open water. We do. And, and I send the dog for the retrieve, and this is the first. It, this is still part of force fetch, in my opinion. And they go down, and it, it's a sighted retrieve. They go down and pick it up and you know, make the retrieve, and you're happy, and they're happy, and you start moving it out. And we're blessed with water that has an open area. It goes out about 50 yards. It's not wide open, but it's more open. We launch our kayaks in and out of that all the time, and it helps keep the the duck, the um, lily pads down. So I just start stepping it out farther and farther, and before long when the dog gets off of that berm where we start from and down into the water, it can't see the duck anymore, and it has to go out there and kind of work for it. But it knows the drill.
1: It knows that it's going out after that duck.
2: Yeah, and um, and then I start restraining one of the duck legs so the duck can move. And uh, you could be as gradual as you need to be with this dog that doesn't have a lot of desire and try and build that desire in, in the duck search water. Am I making sense? Yeah, I yeah. mean, so
1: you don't have to have birds in the field to build bird drive. Right. You just do birds in the water to build the bird drive. Right.
0: And that's essentially kind of how I just... I responded to him. I mean, didn't go into as much detail about tap- taping up the duck, but I said, "Hey, if there's really no difference between building bird drive in the field versus building bird drive in the water, and and it's only going to help with the duck searching, and you're not necessarily restraining the dog like you would in the field, so I don't really agree that it would help by building drive in the field as opposed
2: to the other way around." Right, and you you tailor the uh the way you put the duck out there to the water you have available and the dog. I guess that's the bottom line of what I'm saying is you just tailor it so that it is it does help build the drive of the dog. Right. And and hopefully they get more and more excited about the whole idea of coming to the edge of the water and going out there and look. Um if you go the other way if you give it more birds in the field, you're still going to have to do probably the same thing when you get to the water anyway. You got to convince
1: the dog that there's birds out here too in the water.
2: Exactly. But I don't think it takes nearly as much convincing to go from the water to the field when you're ready to do that. Right. (laughs) I think they'll just jump all over that at that point. It's
1: easier in the field because you're walking along with the dog and, and you can kind of lead it towards those birds in the field if you need to, I think so.
2: Yeah. But as you've seen me do duck search training, I do what I have to do with, A dog in a situation, and the kayak's right there. If I have to hop in the kayak and get out there and help a dog, when I'm doing the duck search, I never let it end without the dog making a successful retrieve. So I usually have a whole bird in a bag or a dead one, if that's what I've got. And if I have to, if that duck has escaped the dog and it's been out there for 20 minutes, or in my case, sometimes 40 minutes, because I don't hesitate to leave a dog out there that long if the weather is uh, is okay. And I'll take it out there with a kayak and make sure the dog is successful with a retrieve. And dogs aren't stupid. He probably, he or she knows that I just dropped that bird out there because I right. got my scent <laughs> all over it. But it did what I sent it to do. Right.
1: You got to make <laughs> it a winner.
2: Yeah. I remember at my first um, uh, Utility Prize 1 test um, when my dog had gotten onto three or four geese that were swimming around the pond. Marilyn Vetter was the out-of-area judge that particular day. And she looked at me and she says, okay, call your dog. And then she says, is your dog going to come if you call it? And I said, I don't know. I've never called it off of a duck search before. Let's (laughs) see. Let's find out. (laughs) Yeah.
3: How did how did that work out?
2: It, she did. She came. Uh, she she knew that she wasn't going to catch those geese at that point, and she turned and it took her a few few whistles, but she came. Good deal.
1: So, Ken, real quick, uh, tell us about your newest uh, mentee that you've been taking out to Navda on the weekends.
2: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> when we when Elky was pregnant with a second litter. One of my neighbors who had admired the puppies from the first litter and came over to visit them a few times, she had just turned, I guess she was 11 at the time, and as soon as she heard that Elkie was pregnant, it was before the delivery, she came over and knocked on my door with her mother in tow, and she said, I want to help you. And I said, (laughs) oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I said, uh, you know, she's only 11, but at the time. And I said, okay, how about you wait until they're three weeks old, and then you start helping me? And from the day they turned three weeks, which, by the way, she came back on exactly the day they turned three weeks <laughs> and knocked on my door again. Um, she put up with all the weird stuff that I, rules and regulations, which Adam probably laughs about now, too. Like, I don't, wear pe- I don't let people wear their own shoes down there into the dog area. They have to take them off and wear a pair of my shoes <laughs> <laughs> uh, just so I don't track anything down there that I don't know where it came from. But anyway, she put up with all that. She helped, and she uh, she was the socializer-in-chief for the entire litter of puppies. And she had them come, and when she called them, and she'd lead them around the yard. And uh, her mother would come sit in the backyard, and we, we enjoyed nice evenings that summer just sitting in the backyard watching the puppies nip at our ankles and all that fun stuff. So as we were coming to the end of it, um, I'm going to... As we were coming to the end of when the puppies were going, Faith was very upset, other than the fact that she knew I was going to keep one. She was very upset. And I I said to her parents, I said, does she want to come out to train with me? And she immediately said yes. (laughs) And her parents said yes. So I've had a training partner for most of my weekends out ever since. She uh, gets up early in the morning, has no qualms about coming over at six or five in the morning, whatever it is. She's a hockey, an ice, ice hockey player by, um, as her sport. Right. So she gets up at all kinds of God awful hours for that. And she has no problem doing this training bit. She brings herself, Snack. Her parents make it, but she brings a snack and a lunch, and we go out and we have a good day of training. She's a very quiet person. She reminds me a lot of myself in that respect. Sure. But she's always thinking, and she has a rapport with the dog that's just amazing. I, I, I knew right away she was has a special relationship with dogs that I felt I had when I was a little kid. So, uh, yeah, she enjoys training so much. We let her shoot a shotgun. She enjoyed that. We haven't gotten her shotgun training yet. That's another story, but, um, I, I'm not qualified to give shotgun training to anybody, much less (laughs) a young lady. Right. So, um, uh, so let's see faith. We got to the point where we're getting ready for the natural ability test and I asked Faith if she wanted to run her in the natural ability test. And she said yes. And she was excited. And so Chip Bondy, my hunting partner and mentor, was out there mentoring her because I couldn't go out with my own puppy because she would come to me when she was called. Okay. So Chip took her under his wing and went out there and made sure Faith knew how to call the dog and you know all the stuff that she needed to know how to do how to handle it in the field. And everything was going on swimmingly until last February when Faith was in the last hockey game of the season. Not, a, It wasn't actually even a game. It was a fun game with her coaches. And she took a shot, and, you know, swung the stick hard, lost her balance, slid into this the boards and broke her tibia. And um, she was just in tears about that because she knew she wasn't going to be able to run Faith in the natural ability test. Not uh from the pain. She just wasn't been... going to be able to run Lenya in the natural ability test. <laughs> and that operation, you know, that's a major operation. Uh, she, she Basically, it was Lenya's opportunity to help Faith by being a companion animal. So they would come over and borrow Lenya, take her over to Faith, they would sit in the house. In fact, Faith was upset that the hospital wouldn't let me bring it in <laughs> to her in the <laughs> hospital. Yeah. But she would spend time with the dog and then when we she started walking again, we would use the walking with the dog to encourage her to strengthen the muscles and get back to everything. And this she she recovered very well. And I had to run the dog in the natural ability test. She came out for that and watched it on the crutches. Um, But I told her, I said, if you want to run a dog in natural ability, it'll be a harder test because she'll be older. But we can enter her in the fall when you're back to full speed. And we did that. And uh, sure enough, it was (laughs) the middle of the day when she ran that dog, but that dog was on fire. (laughs) She was bouncing all over the field. And... Faith kept her cool and did a great job handling the dog. She got another (laughs) prize one and did very well. Um, Not the dog, Faith. The dog did too, but (laughs) Faith did what she had to do. Um, She did an excellent job of that. And uh, uh, now we need to get her some shotgun training. And I'm trying to find a female shotgun coach um, to give her some training so that and get her further along in the utility training. And she'll probably, you know, I may have actually tested Lenya for the last time in my life because Faith will take it over. (laughs) Nice.
0: So that's really cool that you're actually uh, just a a kid interested in the puppies. And now you have her testing in NAVDA and, and really kind of grooming her and, and stroking that passion a little bit. And hopefully she's in it for years to come. After this experience.
2: Well, she was still recovering when we did force fetch, but, um, she was able to walk at that point and she would come over. Faith is homeschooled. So she would come over in the middle of the day, let all the dogs out. And I showed her what I was doing in force fetch and she would do it in the middle of the day, every day for all of force fetch. She took my middle of the day training session. Nice. which was really, really, really nice. And it showed me how much she really understood what we were doing and why. Um, like I say, you learn more about yourself with yeah. force fetch yeah. than any other aspect of this training. That's awesome. I, sh- I should have mentioned that right from the get-go. Yeah, she fact, did a great job with her.
0: Yeah, the fact that she can pick up on that. And I mean, there's there's a ton of adults that are even too scared or intimidated to even attempt it let alone understand the concept and just say, all right, I'll give it a shot. Let's go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ken, that's, that's awesome. That's really impressive. I'm glad to hear that you, uh, you're getting youth involved like that and she's really catching on. And, uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Do you have any breedings or anything coming up?
2: I do not have any breedings right now with work. The way it is, I don't have the time to take off. But uh, my puppy from the first litter—it's her time right now. So, you know, I just don't have time to do it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Tia is her name—the one that just finished the Invitational. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I—I I wish I was telling you I was going to breed her, but.
1: Me too. I'd, uh, i would have my next puppy lined up. I'd like to think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to raise the litter, <laughs> maybe we can work something out.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe so. <laughs> well, we're
0: going to get off this phone call real quick before he get before commits to something I... and Jackie's like, what?
2: <laughs> well, Jackie actually said he wasn't going to get the next puppy. She Jeez. was getting the next puppy. So yeah,
1: everyone yeah, else in my house, too. we have.
2: <laughs> and she was asking me when I was going to breed Tia years ago. Yeah. So I think she's in line in front of you.
1: Well, then she can take care of the litter,
2: <laughs> which is what would, ha- That's
1: what would happen anyways.
3: So.
2: That's what I was going to say. We know who would take care of the litter. Absolutely. All, All right, right, Ken, well, well yeah. this
0: has been fun. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some stories and, uh, and just some wisdom on NAVDA and how to look at training.
2: All right. It's been a lot of fun, and I enjoy your podcast. Keep them going.
0: Thanks. Talk to you soon, Ken.